I would ask you to please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians 2. Today we're going to consider another kind of narrative portion in this letter in which Paul is basically describing his experience to the Thessalonians as he spent not a long time among them. But from that narrative portion, we can learn many things, and today we will consider the marks of a faithful ministry. Now, I have to clarify that Paul is not prescribing what is a faithful ministry, but as he tells them, how was his conduct among them, even in the short short time span he spent in their midst, we can trace from there what are evidences of a faithful ministry. Last time we considered evidences of election, evidences of having true faith. What are the marks of a faithful ministry? Read with me the word of God, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, or with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you have become very dear to us. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. We were in Virginia last week, as many of you know, visiting our children. And the proverbial, if you throw a rock in Virginia, it will land on some church, is true. And you realize that as you traverse in that area. There is practically a church at every corner. In fact, it took about two years to our own children to find a church where to settle. And you say, but how? Why? If you have so many churches around. I'm not saying that the one they found is the only one. No, there are many good churches there in every place. But sometimes it is a challenge to find a place where you would settle and call that home. We, we have visitors in Cornerstone. We've had visitors over the years. The other day I was looking for an address of a person who's no longer with us. And I went to the church directory of two, 20, 2016, just five years ago. I was shocked. The amount of people that were in that directory that are not here. And the amount of you who are not in that directory, but you're already here. And as I go back to 1990... I think that every five years we kind of go through those changes of people who come in, people who go out. And the question is, what do you do to identify a ministry that you consider faithful and you would settle in 
or recommend to someone. Now, when I say that, I want to be clear that I am not of those who believe that my denomination, the people who think like me, those who act like me or like us, are the only ones. Thankfully not. The multitude in heaven, nobody can account for. And if that multitude were made of those who think like us and are in our doctrinal standard and have our confession, very easy to count. Obviously, the multitude of the redeemed is very large, cannot be numbered and accounted for, according to John in Revelation. However, while we get there and we are here, what do we use as marks or evidences to locate a ministry we may feel comfortable with? Especially in the U.S., in the 21st century, in a consumerist society. I don't have any problems with capitalism. I don't have any problems with competition. I don't have any problems with having many options. But <laughs> there is a challenge. We cater to that ability of people to choose, and that creates that marketing mentality. How do I sell better what I have? How do we pitch our church better and attract more people. Nothing wrong with that, provided you have the right motivation to do it. When we look at this passage, in which Paul is basically remarking in an anecdotal way, how was his ministry among the Thessalonians, we can spot five things that would mark a faithful ministry. Five things that even those of you considering to serve the Lord could aim at, because there is not a recipe, in my opinion, even though there are, there are recipes for fruitful ministries, quote-unquote, but you don't want the recipe to be fruitful. You'd rather have the evidences of being faithful in ministry, because that is a requirement the Lord has. Grace stamps, marks of when it's present. It happens to those who have been called by God. It also happens to those who are serving God. What are those marks? I hope that I can consider those five there, but if I can't, we stop it and continue next week. Freddie told me already that I have to preach next week. So for those of you who know that, that's a good excuse to take the weekend off. But anyways, we'll see how many we tackle today of those five marks of a faithful ministry. Let's start with the first one. Verifiable fruitfulness. Paul says, the gospel or our gospel did not come to you in vain. What is that? Our gospel didn't come to you empty. You might remember Isaiah 55 when the prophet says that the word of God is like the rain It always has a purpose. It never returns void. We made that remark about evangelism. We don't have to sell and have a ratio of success in conversions when we evangelize. All we need to do is rain the gospel on people. All we need to do is plant the seed or water the seed. God is the one who gives the growth anyways. Well, Paul says, the gospel didn't come to you guys in vain. Last week, we, we saw the context of that. They had the evidences of election. 
in turning away from idols to serve the living God, in hoping on his son, that eschatological hope, in sincerely and in a good sense receiving the word to their prophet. It's not just hearing something and just forgetting about it as the parable of the sower states it, but they really received it to a prophet. It was marked in transformed lives. They persevered in affliction. Well, that's what Paul means. The word of God did not come to you guys in vain. Gospel preaching is never in vain. Gospel preaching has two elements. It either hardens to destruction or it softens to salvation. The same gospel, the same word in the same congregation, from the same preacher, in the same context, it will harden some to not believe, it will soften others to come to repentance and to the Lord. Somebody used the illustration, and I forget who it was, but probably any of you reading all theologians might remember it. It's like the sun that hardens or softens the wax, but hardens the clay. It is the same sunlight, but it has different effects depending on the purpose God may have for that. And it's interesting that Paul says, our gospel. He described it with a sense of propriety, with a sense of entitlement. According to Acts 17, 1 through 9, Luke describes what gospel was that. Luke says that Paul was reasoning with the Jews and persuading them from the scriptures, and in context, the Old Testament scriptures, that Jesus was the Christ and that he had risen from the dead. That gospel that is centered about Christ, Paul says that's our gospel. Because yes, there are and were other gospels. In Galatians, he says, if anyone preaches to you another gospel, which is different from the one I have preached to you, let that person be anathema. Galatians 1, 5 through 8. In Romans 2, 16, Paul says, every person one day will be judged according to my gospel. He calls it in Romans 2. And I find it fascinating that Paul gets that sense of entitlement and possession about the gospel. And the gospel, beloved, is not good advice. The gospel is good news. There's a lot of preaching that goes around today in churches, teaching us how to be better stewards of our money, better parents, better husbands or wives, how to be better people, how to be better citizens in society, and all kinds of things. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not a recipe for a better life. The gospel is a remedy. The gospel is a proclamation. It's a declaration of telling the guilty you can be free, but outside of yourself and in spite of yourself. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie The Guilty with uh, Jay Gyllenhaal. Forget the name. Jared or Jake. If you saw the movie, I'm not going to tell it to you in case you want to see it. It's this police officer who is manning a 911 booth. And it's an impressive movie because it's just acting. 
There's not a lot of scenery. There's only three or four people that come out in the movie, and it's all phones and this person handling or manning the booth. But if you see the whole gist of the movie, and I'm not, I'm not going to tell it to you, it is this broken person, guilty, trying to save another person and sort of offset that guilt he feels. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not, here's how you can deal with the guilt of your past sins. Here's a remedy to deal with your guilt, especially when you get old like me, of all these sins of your youth that you want to forget. No, no. This is the deal. Somebody came to take care of your guilt outside of you and in spite of you. It was put on Jesus' back and he makes that double transaction with the sinner who believes. He gives you all of his obedience, all of his righteousness, all of his pleasing to God. He's put into your account. You don't have anything else to add to it. That sounds so hard to believe that Paul said that some people accused him of preaching, let us do evil, that good may come from God. Paul says, I've never preached that. But it sounds so radical that if you really think of it, it is, you don't need to do anything. Come to Christ. He will cleanse you, redeem you, adopt you into God's family, and that's all you need. You are pleasing to God from there on. Nothing you can add, nothing you can diminish from what Christ already did on the cross. Paul says, that's our gospel. He went to Thessalonica to persuade the Jews in the synagogue Jesus is Messiah. He rose from the dead, and that's it. It's a proclamation of good news, not a recipe of good advice. Secondly, Paul described as a mark of a faithful ministry boldness, in spite or despite conflict. In verse 2, he states, We had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, but we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. When he comes to Thessalonica, after being in Philippi, if you remember Freddie's sermons, went to jail unjustly, were flogged unjustly, suffered to the point of their wounds had to be cleansed and healed, so Actually, the whipping caused cuttings in their skin, and then they are thrown out of the city and kicked out as criminals. Paul even had to complain, no, 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 you get us the right way, because you incarcerated us unjustly, you get us out following due process. But then they arrived in Thessalonica and have the same problem. Some Jews hear the gospel, receive it with enthusiasm, but then the others come in jealousy and stir up the city. And say, those who are upsetting the entire world have come to upset us as well. So even in the midst of that conflict, Paul says, no problem, I preached the gospel to you. Persecution didn't stop Paul and his team from pursuing their mission. There are so many Christians who live on the theology that I am so scared of, open doors. And closed doors. And I wonder how many of us, in the midst of that persecution and affliction, town after town would have said, well, maybe God is closing the door for us to preach. Not Paul. You know what he told the elders of Ephesus at Miletus? 
He said this in Acts 20, 24. I do not account of any value my life. And I do not account myself as being precious. If only I may finish my course that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul was so resolute in his mission that only at the end of his life he said, I have kept the faith. I have finished the race. I'm done. When he was already seeing death because his execution had been determined and he was in a Roman jail to die. But nothing was going to detour him from his vision and mission that was to declare the gospel to all of those whom Christ had commissioned him. The shameful treatment received did not ameliorate his boldness to continue preaching. The opposition received did not cause him to doubt whether he was on the right path. Because when things are getting tough, you wonder, am I doing God's will? This, this is too hard. Our, we have been trained to this health and wealth gospel, even those of us who claim not to believe it. That whenever things get tough, we assume something is not right, maybe God doesn't want me here. That would have do, discouraged a lot of people I know, including me, from continuing. Closed doors, not for Paul. Doors never close to obey God. Make no mistakes. And the doors to please, to please the flesh are always closed. So when I want to spend lavishly to satisfy my flesh, and it happens to be, as Hispanics say, un billetero que insiste y un numero que atrae. I don't even know how to translate that. But here's the offer of the lotto ticket, and the number is so attractive. That must be God opening. It is to please my flesh. I guarantee you, God is not opening anything. And if it is to follow Jesus and obey his command, the road may be steep and uphill. The door's open to take it. Because it is a narrow door. It is a wicked gate. Paul didn't take the open door of comfort. This time, fascinating, he called his message the gospel of God. He moved from my gospel to the gospel of God. But it's still the same message. Jesus is Messiah. He died and rose from the dead. He is the fulfillment of scripture in him, as he says in 2 Corinthians, all of the promises of God are yes and are amen. I don't care what your eschatological view is. You're waiting for a millennium in Israel? Fine. If you're not, fine. Get this clear. The Old Testament, Jesus says, was about him. That's what he told the disciples. And when you start reading Matthew... You notice how the gospel writers and then the apostles, when they preached and took the Old Testament, they applied it to Jesus, not to anyone else. God, Paul says, 
That is the gospel of God. That Jesus must have Jesus must have suffered and then risen from the dead. Now let me make a side note of application. Many years ago, we went as a church over that book and topic of the trellis and the vine. The trellis, the fence, whatever you do to make your garden prosper and do well, and the vine is the plant. And the whole thesis of the book, Colin Marshall and Thomas Paine was, in church we have to make sure that whatever trellises we build are only for the purpose of growing the vine. And he challenges pastors and leaders to review every ministry and check, is this ministry bringing forward the Great Commission? Is this ministry propagating the gospel and building the disciples up? Or is this just something we have for the sake of having it because our church needs to have these ministries? And of course, their answer is, make sure that whatever trellises you have, whatever ministries or activities you have in church, they serve only to the great and one and only mission we have. Make disciples, baptize them, and teach them all things I have commanded you, even to the end of the world. Ministries, activities, music, youth group, children's group, Sunday school, men's meeting, women's meeting, whatever it is we do, it has to be a handmaid to the proclamation of the gospel with the purpose of making disciples, teaching them, and building them up. That is the vision and the mission. Somebody years ago got actually mad because I said that from the pulpit. What's the vision of the church? It's not for me to say it because Freddie is the pastor, not me. I'm just one of the teachers here. But, but I'm pretty sure that if Freddie were here, he would say the vision of the church is to preach the gospel with the purpose of making disciples, calling people out of darkness into God's marvelous light. And then once they are called, baptizing them and then teaching them. Until when? Until Christ returns. That's the vision. There's no other else. There's no other thing to do. Now, you may have strategies. You may have things that you want to do, that you want to promote. As long as that vision is paramount and is never removed from our eyesight. Thirdly, another mark of a faithful ministry is honesty. Verses 3 and 4. Paul says, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. I find that very powerful. Because Paul says, I came to you without any guile, without any intention to sell or promote, or you've gone to buy that car, right, that you saw in the paper back in the day. Now I know we check on the internet. But back in the day, you saw the, the car in the paper that it's supposed to be, I don't know, 30,000, but this one in particular is 19,999. And you go for that one, and what do they tell you? Oh no, that one was sold. That car doesn't exist. It was just a gimmick to attract you. Or perhaps you remember those guys who would sell you these books that would give you 20 restaurants and coupons to go to those restaurants and you would pay half the price. 
And then when you tried the coupon, you paid $50 for the coupon. Then you went to the restaurant and you found this, this bill that had the meal you ate, taxes, like a 25% tip already included, and then they gave you $10 discount. That was a half price because it was only applicable to certain dishes. But they never told you that. They just got you to walk into the restaurant with a gimmick of the book. We are experts at receiving those kinds of things, right? Paul says, that's not how I go about preaching the gospel. Sadly, sadly, there's way too many of us who do that. There's way too many of us who use music and instrumentation and technology to make the church appear cool and attractive. And don't get me wrong. I love good music. I love when the music is great and moves me to sing. God made us musical. Music has the ability to lift or move certain endorphins in our systems, moves our emotions. And what a greater combination than having music, good, well-played music, well-instrumented, well-led, with good lyrics, to move our endorphins to worship God. I have no problem with that. I think it is biblical. The longest book in the Bible is a songbook, the book of Psalms. But one thing is that. Another entirely different thing is just to orchestrate and, and design a worship service to make it appear cool, attractive, and hip, and see how we can hook people. I think it's R.C. Sproul who used to say, when we come to church, we have one purpose, to feed the ship. The sheep, I'm sorry. If there are any non-sheep among us, we're not going to change the menu for their sake. We are still feeding sheep's food, meaning we are teaching the Bible. Of course, if we teach the Bible right, we will always end up in Jesus. Because Jesus is the subject matter of the Bible. But we're not going to come with tricks to make it cool and attractive. So we make sure we have young people and young families and everybody feels great and awesome in our midst. Paul I didn't go to you with any gimmicks. I went to you in truth, he says. In truth, conscious embracing and conscious proclaiming of the truth of the gospel to the best of our knowledge. If I tell you that I know all truth and I have all truth, please run, run from me. Because obviously we are learning. The one who teaches and those who hear are all disciples of Jesus. And we are learning after him. But we seek to proclaim that truth without error or impurity. It is not just stating truthful facts, but it is also living truthfully. Because the messengers and the message are tied together in integrity. Paul says, I live before God. He tests the hearts. Coram Deo, before the face of God. Whatever we do, we do it under Him. Do you want to know who you are? Who you are when you're alone. That's you. I am not who I am in this pulpit. I am who I am alone. 
when it's 2 a.m. and I'm sleepless and everybody's sleeping, or when I'm in Chile or who knows where, in Australia or wherever my job takes me and nobody has any idea of who am I, that's who I am. I hope I am the same one you see because it is the one who God sees. That's the name of the game. Actors, we can all play an act and be the actor. But Paul says, not me. I live before God, the one who tests the heart. And he says, and I live in uprightness. Uprightness, not seeking to please men, but to please God. Which is the other challenge. Do we want to be popular and attractive and well-known? Or do we just want to be faithful? Anyone considering the ministry here or already in the ministry, remember 1 Corinthians 4. This is what God requires of his servants. One thing, that they may be found faithful. It's faithful to 2, to 20, 200, or 2,000. That is God's prerogative. But what is required of the servants is to be found faithful, loyal, Men and women of integrity who live under God. Now, I like it that Paul, and Paul is a rabbi. Remember, I always tell you, Paul is a converted rabbi. And he takes those parallelisms and those circles of thought and just makes them wider. He starts with my gospel, the gospel of God, and now he says, my appeal. Because the gospel has that element of being an appeal. Let me tell you the, the mistake that some of us made in our youth. Perhaps we make it, but at least we try to get away from it. You learn truth, theological truths, you have your heroes in preaching, and then in your mind, gospel preaching must have these one, two, three steps, and must have these propositional truths that have to be accurately stated. Because if some of my friends hear me, I don't want them to think that I am not orthodox. You can take all of your friends, pack them together, and send them to the top of the mountain. When you're preaching the gospel, you're appealing with God's message to the souls of people, and it is an appeal. Yes, it has to have truth. We've covered that already. But it is an appeal. Your mind and your heart and your soul has to be there, because it is a dying person pleading with a dying person. To use Richard Baxter's words. So the gospel has that element of pathos. That element we find in Ezekiel. When we hear God through the prophet telling Israel. Turn back. Turn back. Why will you perish? O house of Israel. Now do you think Ezekiel was there? Turn back. Turn back. Why will you perish? O house of Israel. Turn back. Turn. Of course not. It is an appeal that has pathos, that has emotions, that is pleading with people's minds and hearts, seeking to persuade them. Yes, I have to give truth. It has to have meat. It has to have content. But it also has to have passion. The old story, I don't know if it was about Spurgeon or about D.L. Moody that was said, of this atheist who would love to hear him. And people would say, but why do you hear him? 
If you're an atheist, you don't believe in what he's preaching. He says, I love to hear him because he believes what he's preaching. Do people perceive that we believe when we plead with them? Repent and turn to God. Why will you perish? Do our children believe us when we plead with them at dinner time or in the morning or in the afternoon? My son, my daughter, turn to Christ. Why will you perish? Fourthly, Paul says, I didn't do it to seek personal gain either. Verse 5, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext. God is our witness, nor did we seek glory from people. No flattery. I find that one hard. You know what's the difference between flattery and praise? It can be exactly the same word. I can say, Mama, your clothing is beautiful today. And I can be flattering my wife, or I could be praising my wife. And where's the difference? The end in view. What do you want? The profit of the hearer or your benefit? It's not in what you say. It's in the purpose and motivation and end in view you have when you say it. Romans 16, 19, Paul writes this about those who cause division in the church and those who are false teachers. He says, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. You know what is a mark of a false teacher? They flatter you at the beginning because they want to hook you. And they flatter you because they want you to build an identity and a sense of value around them. And once they have you in their web, then they demand loyalty. And they enslave you. Keep an eye. Keep an eye. You see some of them on television and you say, that's exactly what they do. You just hear their preaching and you know. And you see the people enslaved to their manners and to their commandeering tone. Oh, but when you meet them in person, they are so charming at the beginning. That's all they care for. They just want you to be in their web to then trap you. Proverbs 29.5, remember that verse? He who flatters his neighbor spreads a net before his feet. Flattery is just putting a trap for you to get entangled, trample, and fall. Paul says, secondly, no greed. Faithful ministry and minister is not in for the money. I'll say that again. A faithful ministry or minister is not in for the money. In 1 Timothy 6.5, he warned, Many use godliness as a means of personal gain. Remember, I was 18 years old, walking into engineering school, and my friend was going into biology school, but then he decided to switch and go into the ministry. And his dad, who was a successful engineer, said to him, 
well, you're going to the ministry? That's awesome. But his dad was an unbeliever. He used to live in Boca Raton. He says, that's very profitable. You'll make a lot of money being a pastor. Because many go into the ministry as a means of gain. Plant a seed. God will return it. Some of them have the nerve to say, it doesn't matter if you're in debt, take your credit card out and put a thousand on that credit card, send it to the ministry, God will repay you. That comes from the pit of hell. And I don't care who they are. Greed. They just care for money and for their own interest. And they sound so well. And they even preach the gospel. Preach it better than me. They have followers by the thousands, if not the millions. Their sermons and their works are translated into several languages. They are worldwide known celebrities. But they're in for the money. Now let me say something that touches closer, because I know you guys are not into that. You're not sending money to anybody to change their airplanes. I know that. You know better. Let me say something that touches closer to who we are. It is disturbing to me, and I'm not saying whomever does that is doing it wrong. That is not my place to judge them. So that's not the point. But it is troubling to me more and more to see this merchandising of the gospel. Conferences, publications, ministries, music. Some individuals, you cannot even use their picture. I could not put a quote of XYZ and put his picture or her picture because their picture is copyrighted. (laughs) You're kidding me. No, I'm not kidding you. You could not use their picture in public without permission because even their image is copyrighted. That is very disturbing to me. I'll have to be honest. I don't get this merchandising with the gospel. I don't get this paying $900 to attend a conference. Well, meal is included. Oh, awesome. For so Chick-fil-A and 9000 because you're going you're to give me a Chick-fil-A at noon. It's, it's troubling to me. 2 Peter 2.3 says, And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. I, will, I was once at a conference, and I'm not going to mention names because I'm not crazy yet. When I do that, Freddie, get me out of the pulpit, it means that I'm already really turning old. But so far, I'm not going to mention names. But I says, hey, I have a suggestion. Why don't we broadcast the interpretations of this conference into Spanish so that people in Latin America can hear them? Answer, no. Because if we do that, we will discourage them from attending our conference. And this is our highest revenue event in the year. I cannot tell you the word I thought, but my mouth didn't say. And I said, say what? He says, do you think a person in Argentina making $5,000 a year will have the ability to get a visa, an airplane ticket of $800, come to the States, spend $500 in hotels, rent a car, and come here? Do you really think that? You have no idea who you're talking to then. Not, not to me, but you're, you don't have no idea who you're broadcasting for. Who are you translating this for then? Oh, for the people who come on the States? They, are, they live here already. They can learn English. Thankfully, they changed that. And now they are doing that even with better people than those who used to be doing that job. And, and a friend of mine and me used to be there. 
But my point is, beloved, the ministry is not for greed. This is not to make money. There are visitors in Cornerstone. Let me say something I brag about Cornerstone. And I do brag. We don't have paid employees in this little church. Freddie doesn't make money. Victor and Mario do not make money. They don't even pay me to preach. Can you believe that? Tell them something. <laughs> These guys who sing here and use their time, Tony and, and, and Osborne and, uh, and John, and there's others. They spend hours rehearsing. Nobody makes a penny here. What do you do with all that money then? Oh, they, they pay electricity bills and send it to missions and help poor people, etc. I think that's what the church is supposed to do. I once saw a budget of a very well-known church. It was about a million dollars a year budget. 770000 were spent in salaries. And I said, you're, you're gonna, and I have the document. I have the paper with me. I'm not making this up. I have it in a manual. Beloved, that's not the ministry. And no personal glory. And I'll have to cut the sermon because my time is up. So I'll have to finish it next week. The last point is a no personal glory. Many have their identity tied to how popular, how many likes, how viral their sermons are, how known they are. Well, says, I'm not interested in personal glory from you or from anybody else. The only glory I care for is whatever reward God can give me as a servant. And I'm just paraphrasing Paul. Jesus says, you work to hear these words. Good and faithful servant, you were faithful over a few things. Enter into the joy of your master. That's it. Can you imagine? Have you ever been praised at work? You must have. You, you know, your boss told you, hey, you did a good job. Or at school, hey, nice job, nice whatever. And you, Can you imagine spending eternity with the ears ringing on the, in the voice of Jesus? Well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. Then your life is irrelevant and small, I get it. But you were faithful to me. Come into the joy of your master. And eons and eons and eons will pass by. And I don't know how it will be. But you, you'll go by and see Jesus. And I guess he'll wave back at you, Right? And you're in the joy of your master. Because that's the only glory you cared for. May the Lord help us to live in his sight. For his purposes. For his glory. And at the end of the day, you know what these traits are of a faithful ministry? It's like if you took a picture of Jesus. You look at the point of the outline. That was Jesus. And Peter says, we are called to walk in his footsteps. Amen. Let's pray. Father, bless your word despite my odd remarks and my mistakes and the things I said that I should have not. But still I pray that you bless your word in the hearing of those who heard it. And I pray, Father, that in your grace and mercy you deliver us from evil and deliver us from being exactly the opposite of what I preached, because that's what we are in our flesh. May your spirit guard us, guard Freddie, our pastor, and our deacons, and keep our hearts pure until the day you come. In Jesus' name.
Amén.